Hello and welcome to this episode of Have I Got Next Gen News For You, produced by the City Property Association Next Gen Committee. This podcast is part of a series where members of the CPA Next Gen Committee discuss and explain key topics that are influencing the real estate industry now. I'm Alex Thorpe, Senior Development Manager at CORE, and today I'll be leading the discussion on the City Corporation's recently launched Carbon Options Guidance with my two wonderful guests. If I can ask you both to introduce yourselves, that'd be great. My name is Marie-Louise Kembri. I'm a Sustainability Director at Hilsa Moran, an environmental engineering consultancy, and I was the key author of the Carbon Options Guidance, which we are going to talk about today. Hello everyone, I'm Karina Funke, I'm a Sustainability Officer at the City of London Corporation. I work in the Planning and Development Division and I'm involved in development management, giving advice to applicants on how to make their buildings more sustainable, specifically for the city context. And I also work on policies and other planning documents around sustainability, one of them we're going to talk about today. Perfect, thank you. So as expected, there is a lot to discuss on this topic, so I suggest we just get stuck in. Um, So just to sort of provide a bit of context and introduce um, the area for discussion, just wanted to discuss why is carbon so important for development in the real estate industry today? Marie-Louise, is that something you want to jump in on? Yes, certainly. Carbon is extremely important in in the sense that the construction industry is a huge contributor to carbon emissions globally. Uh, About 40% of carbon emissions comes from the built environment. And we recently identified that and became much more aware that the carbon emissions from construction, not energy use, because we've been focusing on energy use for a long time, but the carbon emissions from construction contributes about 35 to 70% of the carbon emissions if you had to count 60 years of the building in operation. That's a huge impact. Um, So it's incredibly important to start to measure it and start to reduce it. The city have committed to be net zero carbon by 2040 across the square mile. So in terms of our discussion today, what is the carbon options guidance and how will it help the city achieve their objective? So the city is committed to reducing um, carbon emissions. Um, We've got our climate action strategy in place uh, that is mostly focused on our own operations from the corporation. But we do have one work stream that is focused on reducing the carbon emissions in the wider square mile. And uh, that is why we developed a um, carbon options guidance, which is our new planning advice note that has recently been published. And it's essentially a document that requires developers to look at different options of retaining existing buildings that are already on the development site at an early stage in the pre-application process. It's a standardized methodology that shows applicants how to present this information on the options, the different carbon impacts of each development option, the assumptions underlying this for the calculations, and also the different limitations and opportunities of each option. And that's a really critical step, which helps us to identify which option is the best one to go forward for a particular site, because it's not always the lowest carbon option. There are a lot of other factors going into it, a lot of other sustainability criteria, but also other planning related aspects going into this. Um, And that helps us to essentially identify what the best option is for a particular site. It's something that has, of course, uh, gotten more and more attention over the last few years. Uh, We've got 
our members um, asking us about addressing uh, carbon emissions in the square mile and also the local communities are uh, more concerned about this and want us to highlight how we are reducing carbon emissions in the city and this is a really great tool to show how this has been considered in different applications going forward when members need to scrutinize these applications or when members of the public want to look at these applications. So why is it important to look at the options early in the process of a development or a redevelopment? I'd say historically, and it still happens, first of all, there's a very quick changeover cycle in property and buildings in the square mile because it's a very successful economy and it's working in what it's trying to do. And developers would historically straight away jump to demolition and rebuild Uh, without being conscious of the carbon emissions. Now, more recently, planning has required carbon emissions to be measured. But what this COG is trying to do is make developers consider the different options. So if you didn't demolish, have you considered just refurbishing the building? Does the building have good enough bones to keep the structure in place and only change parts of the building? And before this, there wasn't quite anything requiring the industry to explore the various options of what one can do with the existing building stock. So carbon was being emitted more frequently at at very high rates. Um, And this, even at consultation stage, there is a lot more consideration now in the industry. So the, the policy, the PAN, has made people more aware of opportunities to retain of the carbon savings, opportunities to retain existing structures and refurbish, retrofit existing buildings. Um, And there's a debate in the industry now about what constraints do we need to overcome to enable us to use existing stock rather than demolish, throw everything into the recycled cycle landfill, although not much of it goes there anymore, and to make the best of what we have and reinvent it. And there are advantages to that on an environmental level, most definitely. How has the Carbon Options Guidance changed the planning application process? I know, Marie-Louise, you you have some thoughts on that. So in the context of um, what's changed in the way um, planning applications need to um, happen, so before a planning application takes place, um, there's a process and the methodology is very clearly set out in the, the planning advisory guidance in that it lays out exactly what information is required for the various options, um, including demolition, but um, it now needs to include options to retain and refurbishment and and variants of. And the information required there is clear. So there's a request for the developer and the developer team to identify the pros and cons of one option against another. Obviously, there's information requiring whole life cycle carbon, as a rate and as a total figure, um, the increase in floor area that each option would provide. Then there's information required around energy use and the type of fuel. It's a list that's quite clear and set out in a what is um, being called a dashboard, uh, which needs to be completed and presented to the planning authority for discussion at what is known in the industry as a, at a pre-application stage. So it's also really important that developers do this really early on in the uh, in the process. So this happens at pre-application stage, and essentially it causes a shift in thinking from the developer side. It used to be the default thinking to redevelop, and now we're asking them to consider these different options early on, which can then inform the application scheme going forward. Benefits of doing that so early on and having conversations with planning officers as well means that 
uh, we can give feedback as to how you would sustainably develop in the city specific context and give that advice to developers as well. So we can have a more useful discussion around this and identify viable potential options for the development side. So this conversation happens with an open mind and we can develop a range of options that would work for that particular site, which is then being assessed. This is a shift from what happened previously. So beforehand, developers might have considered options, but this information wasn't presented in any way in the application scheme. So the members of the public weren't able to look at this information and it wasn't clear that the developers did this work and actually considered options. And now with this methodology, this information is available to everyone to uh, be looked at. So all the thinking that went into the application scheme is publicly accessible when the scheme is submitted. The GLA guidance uh, on whole life cycle carbon assessments also uh, requires developers to demonstrate that they have considered different options at an early stage, but there's no clear guidance around how to do this. And one of the aims was to develop this uh, guidance to streamline this process further to help give clarity to developers to know how to present this information, but also make it easier for planning officers and for members to look at this information clearly. Marie-Louise, would you be able to provide some details to how Hills and Moran were involved with the City Corporation in order to produce this guidance? Uh, yes, absolutely. About a year ago, uh, we were approached um, on the back of a submission we had made for a developer um, in London, where there was a, an open discussion about transparency and honesty in planning applications where it comes to carbon reporting. What came out of that is City asked us to help them in establishing a more transparent methodology to enable them to be able to see and compare projects like for like. So it just needed to be transparent, it needed to be consistent and enable them to have all the information they required to make an informed decision about planning application and at the same time, of course, achieve the city's own carbon commitments. So we went through a process of drafting a planning advisory note and uh, there was a lot of toing and froing with the city at the time um, until it was in a place that could be published for consultation. The consultation took place towards the end of the summer of last year and the response was incredible actually. There was quite a lot of feedback. Uh, there were a few consultation sessions that were in person with various stakeholders in the city and in the industry. And after that process, uh, there was an exercise in reviewing the original consultation document and producing a simpler, engaging process in developing something that was received very well by the industry. And now we have an adopted planning advisory note with a simpler title. And um, it's been used already by a number of applications. We've seen a good take up of it based on the consultation draft and even before that point. So there are a few things that we would need to go through together um, because every project is different, but it's already proving beneficial. There is now an industry conversation about the challenges of retrofit um, and it's an open discussion. The key thing is that we're talking about it and we are talking about what those challenges are. There is a practical element. So what the carbon options guidance does is it tries to simplify the process because it is asking for a lot more information that would have typically been prepared um, before a planning application. But it's also 
simplifying it so that the reporting isn't overburdened with you know thousands of words and pages. It's getting to the point about what's key, the key information is, and it is easy to check by others because there is something to check it against, given that the planning advisory uh, notice out there and gives a clear methodology of what needs to be done. So the method is the important thing here, and the information should enable a like-for-like comparison across options and across projects. So there's mention in the guidance note of a third-party review. Karina, would you be able to explain why that was inputted into the guidance? Yes, we introduced third-party review essentially um, to introduce rigor and scrutiny into the process. It ensures that the optioneering forms a robust basis for the development of the application scheme. And it's a process where the options are checked in terms of their design, their calculations, and whether they've been evaluated realistically and consistently. The third party review uh, ensures that members and planning officers that scrutinize the application can be assured that the choice of the options and the calculations are robust and relevant to the city of London area and also helps uh, members of the public looking at this application to know that this has been checked and validated. So we've mentioned some of the challenges. It'd be quite useful to understand the bigger picture, I suppose, and the impact that you expect this um, carbon options guidance to have in the city. So the ultimate aim is, of course, that we see a significant reduction in whole life cycle carbon emissions and embodied carbon emissions specifically. Also that the construction industry produces less waste by reusing existing structures and um, that we actually maximize the potential of those existing buildings that are already on site and use them to our advantage. And this, of course, cannot be solely achieved through the planning advice note, but this forms a key step towards this. In terms of the impact that we can see so far, it's that developers are approaching the development process with a more open mind and that they incorporate thinking about reducing carbon emissions uh, in every step of the process. So they're really starting off right and we can see how they're starting to commit to further reducing their carbon emissions as well in the detailed design phase. So this is a great step towards minimizing carbon emissions in the square mile. You've made some fabulous points there. So can we just delve into a bit more detail as to why we're focusing so much on embodied carbon and what is the city trying to achieve through this planning guidance? So embodied carbon emissions are associated with the construction and the maintenance cycles of a building, mostly in relation to the materials. And the majority of these emissions are the upfront emissions that are associated with the construction of the building up until practical completion. So these are the ones that are being emitted in the short term. And according to the IPCC, uh, to be able to stay within a 1.5 degree increase in global temperatures, we need to decrease our emissions by 43% by the end of this decade uh, compared to a 2019 baseline. So it's actually a very significant uh, decrease in emissions that we need to achieve over the next seven years or so. And reducing the upfront carbon emissions, those are the ones that will be emitted over the next few years. And if we address that by retaining existing buildings and having less emissions associated with new materials to develop new buildings, then that is a very good step towards achieving major carbon emission savings in the short term. The planning advice node is a tool that facilitates that essentially, that encourages developers to explore these different refurbishment options of retaining the building and ultimately reduces those short-term emissions. Are there any limiting factors preventing all buildings being retrofitted? Marie-Louise, what are your thoughts on this? Um, Yes, there are. Every building is different. I think the city has the advantage of having a very high quality of building stock, of built stock. So there is a lot there to 
work with, um, and it's important that we recognise this. But the planning advisory note identifies what these challenges could be, and there's additional um, documentations that the the CPA has published, a really good guide as well, uh, towards the end of last year, that looks to explore what the challenges might be, so that there's more of an open discussion about what those are. And they range from the structure of the building, the existing structure, can it take more years, can it take more weight? Um, It's typically only viable to refurbish a building if there is a significant improvement and additional floor area, where it is possible to do that within the constraints of heights and views. Um, There are considerations for well-being, for example, there is uh, more expectation of better daylight, for example, in workspace. So if the glass is too dark, then there there is scope to at least change the windows. It's just a a small practical example, but it's, it's quite important that everything is considered. I would say the advantages of densification is being discussed quite a bit, because usually if you build tall, there's limited capacity to keep the existing structure. You would probably need to reinforce or replace the existing structure. So then the conversation becomes a little bit more challenging. Uh, But there are advantages to densification because the city, there's already investment in a lot of infrastructure, transport, utilities, etc., and services that enable people to go to one place, meet and work a few times a week in today's environment. There's a number of things that are out there for discussion and need to be considered. And the planning advisory note, the carbon options guidance, invites the pros and cons to be clearly laid out in the pre-application and application. I would argue that we are yet to go through a phase of challenging the challenges so they're not excuses for not retaining and I think we're not quite there yet but it's probably the next phase of of conversation so for instance why do we have to have a very specific floor to ceiling height to be able to tick a box and make a work environment acceptable to the industry are we able to flex a little bit more or have we set ourselves so many and parameters for what counts as a viable space that we're restricting creativity and innovation and even having buildings with more character rather than producing spaces that aren't quite connected to their context. So there's a lot that we still need to go through, but we're talking about it and, and there's a lot going on out there to keep a conversation going. Just to add to this as well, as Marie-Louise mentioned, some buildings are easier to refurbish than others. And with the ones where it's not as obvious or they don't have the most ideal bones in the vision of the developer and the architect, that's where we really need the more creative thinking. And that's where the optioneering actually comes in um, really useful because we can discuss different options at an early stage. We can also give the developers some advice on what we might have seen in previous schemes. See, So for instance, uh, floor to ceiling height restrictions, in some cases you might be able to open this up and have double height uh, areas and parts of the floor plan. So there are some solutions that can be implemented to still create viable and attractive places. And that's what we're really trying to encourage and we would like to see more of. One thing that we're doing as a corporation as well is uh, working on publishing a couple of refurbishment case study guides that highlight some of these best practice examples what they've done and this will hopefully also help to trigger some more creative thinking and thinking outside of the box moving forward so we see more of these interesting and bespoke solutions for different building sites. 
So watch this space for more information. And I think that leads us on nicely to our final question. And this is one that we like to ask all our guests who join us at the CPA Next Gen podcast. So, in your opinion, which three words best describe what London will look like in 2050? If I just stick to my three words, I would say that London will be healthier, more vibrant and more diverse. And I think that will be a result of pollution going down. Um, I see more greening and biodiversity in the city, more climate resilience measures, more integrated spaces, mix of users. And um, yeah, that people are also more flexible with how we use spaces. My three words to answer that question is um, I think the city will be greener there'll be a lot more presence of greenery in the city. Um, there is probably going to be a lot more public realm and space that can be used on the ground plane rather than you know, a series of reception entrances and that sort of thing. So there's, there's a transformation that's starting to happen, more pedestrianisation, uh, more consideration of how it feels at the ground level and more inclusive. We are a lot more conscious of how space affects people in different ways um, and I'm really excited about the beginnings of a conversation about neurodiversity and how design can help with that and it's, the public realm plays a very important role in enabling accessibility not, that's not just physical but also mental. I think that's all we have time for today. A massive thank you to Karina and Marie-Louise for joining us and explaining the Carbon Options Guidance in a bit more detail. Thanks for having us Alex, it was lovely being here. Same here. Thank you very much. That was fun. Thanks, Alex. I'd also like to thank the City Poverty Association, supported by Gardner and Theobald, and our producer, Elizabeth Hodson, for helping us make this podcast happen. Finally, a thank you to everyone for listening. If you want to find out more about the CPA NextGen, please visit our website, citypropertyassociation.com forward slash next dash gen, or visit us on social media. We'd love to hear from you. And lastly, a big thanks from me, Alex Thorpe. See you soon. <laughs>